Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, our guest is Heine Zachariasen, the founder and CEO of Vivino. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. I was wondering if you could give us a brief background on yourself and your career and how you ended up starting Vivino. Yeah, definitely. And I could say it wasn't really in my cards, if I may say so, to start a wine app. You know, I I was born in a very small place in the middle of the North Atlantic called the Faroe Islands. So 50,000 people between Norway and Iceland. And there really wasn't much wine. It was just beer and schnapps. So I had a lot of that when I was younger. But I'm an entrepreneur. I'm into technology. And that's really what drove me to start Vivino. And really the frustration with walking into a supermarket and seeing this wall of wine and not knowing what to buy. That frustration is said, okay, we got to solve this problem. But that was really the start of why I started Vivino. So would you consider yourself more of a technologist or more of a wine person? Like where was the origin? Yeah, no, definitely a product uh, technology person more than anything. My education is in business, but people always see me as someone a little bit nerdy and techy, although I don't have any background in that. And maybe this relates to that vision of finding it, but part of the core of Vivino's vision is to disrupt the wine market. How do you see Vivino doing that? Yeah, I think the core challenge here is really that buying wine is not easy. Buying wine is difficult for people. It creates anxiety. What do I buy? I don't know enough about it and so on. So our job really is to help people drink better wine and really taking down the risk when people buy wine. So how can we, when you go into Tesco or a Safeway, have more confidence when you buy a bottle of wine? And I think what we're doing is super disruptive. We basically have a rating on every single wine out there. We have a rating, we have a price, we have a taste characteristics, and now the new match for you, maybe we'll chat a little bit about that. It's all about helping people drink better wine and creating more transparency for the casual wine drinker. So one of my first, you know, I was an early user of Avino, and one of my original impressions of the concept was, hey, I tasted this wine. Oh, I like this wine. Let me take a photo of the wine, figure out where I can buy it locally and get it to me. I know in Europe, I think you were able to close the distribution earlier than you were in the US. How has that evolved? It seems like Vivino has gone a lot larger than just that original concept, that core loop. Yeah, I think we, in the early days, our product or even our database was just honestly a little bit horrible. There just wasn't much in there. We've built this database over the past 10 years from scratch. So like our first slogan was never forget another wine. And the reason for that is that's basically your use case, right? And the reason for that is because we couldn't deliver on the other thing. We would love to deliver on the other but we just didn't have the data back then. So now it's much more about both finding out, is this wine any good? And also looking at the future saying, hey, what should I be drinking? And so on. So originally it was more of, I've tasted this, I don't want to get it. We all taste wines. We're like, oh, I remember that. I think I may have tried that. And that was, it was more like a notepad or like a simple review for the end user. But then you've now incorporated all these kind of like crowdsourced metrics. And obviously, historically, there's always been seller tracker, but that's a very niche kind of geeky, hardcore audience. But then you've basically taken what Yelp has done and applied it to wine. How has that worked out in terms of a rating system? Like, how do you personalize that so that you can start to understand? Because crowdsourcing, like millions of people tasting one one wine, maybe won't resonate with my taste specifically. Yeah, I think there are multiple stories there, right? And multiple answers to. I think, first of all, when we started this, we didn't really know, was this going to work or was this not going to work, right? I remember in the very early days, we were building the product. We went to this small discount supermarket actually here in Copenhagen, and they had like 50 wines. 
and we kept sort of, we had a few, maybe a few thousand users on, we kept scanning and so on. And at that point, I got a little bit concerned because it just looked like a lot of these wines were like, ended up at 3.7 or 3.8 out of five. So I was thinking, this is, this is worrying. I'm concerned about this. But over time, it turned out that that particular supermarket, all the wines were the same quality and similar price points. So it did make sense. And now you have these, these really, really good wines. They would get a 4.7, 4.8. And the really crappy industrial products, they will actually get it at 2.3 or 2.5. And the correlation with what the community does to the experts is incredibly strong. So if you get a wine that has at least 10, hopefully 20 ratings, it is a very, very strong rating. Okay, so the, the statistically significant at 10 to 20 ratings, you start to see that law of numbers play out. Is, okay, got it. Exactly. And in terms of making recommendations, in terms of AI-driven recommendations feature, how does that work? Yeah, that's something that's more exciting now. It's a new thing we're rolling out right now. I'll, let me go a little bit backwards on, on what people are looking for when they look up a wine. If you look at the top three that people are looking for here, number one is actually, is the wine any good? So the first thing I want to know is the rating. That makes a lot of sense. What do you think is number two? Price. Yes, you are absolutely right. The number two is price. And number three, oh, now I might as well quiz you on that. So what is number three then? I guess where I can buy it. It's close. It is. It's close. And maybe they didn't want to close, but it's actually what it tastes like, which also makes sense, right? And that we hadn't solved really, really well because it was all based on this these comments that people wrote and they just varied in quality. But a couple of years ago, we launched what we called Taste Characteristics, where we structured all this. So you now when you look at this, you can see actually what it tastes like, even tasting notes, all that based on AI to figure out what the wine tastes like. So what we've done with the new AI is take all this knowledge about these wines in a structured form and combine it with all these users and putting those two together, we're building an, like odds on how likely is it that you will like it. So the new thing that we're launching, which is out now for most users, is called Match for You. And it's like a Netflix feature where you get a percentage on the wine saying, okay, how likely is it that Peter or Robert uh, like this wine? And it's funny if you buy this, you should scan something together that one of you likes Sinfandel and the other one doesn't then and see how that reacts. So with the, the structuring of the wine taste characteristics, is that only flavors? Is it also the structure, like the acidity, alcohol, tannins of the wine? And how do you get that information into the system? Yeah, you're exactly right. It's actually basically those two things. It's scales on acidity and, and bold and so on. There are scales depending on what type it is. And then it's actually tasting notes. And the way we get that into the system is, is using AI to actually, we started the database by reading all the reviews. Every time it's a, someone said very bold, we sort of pushed it a little bit in that direction. But now we also have a feedback loop so the users also can change the scales and add tasting notes and so on. And it was good when we launched it. Now, obviously, we've got even more data points and now it's very, very strong. So maybe to help me, because I got to imagine with anything of this scale, you have some discrete user segmentation. So you have the people who are like prolific that are going to just write lots of reviews and taste lots of wines, essentially the content creators. Then you have people who are the voyeurs, the people who are going to like access the database, want to hear those things. Like I don't write a lot of Yelp reviews, but I will go look at what Yelp reviewers wrote. Yes. And so I was curious if you could, and I'm assuming 
the wine brands are looking at this as well. Curious on like, what are the main users of Vivino? Like what are the large buckets of people that like you would say are the, are the primary users? It is like you say, obviously some small amount of users are incredibly dedicated and we're grateful to that. And so are like the 50 million users that appreciate all the information they put in. But one place that we're a little bit different is that a lot of people rate. And Robert, you said, hey, you don't rate that much on Yelp. And that is something they have to fight with, right? People don't rate that much. But on Vivino, for every scan, 15, 20% actually rate. And 6, 7% do a review. And it's not like we're especially good at it. I'm a little bit of a cynic on this. It's really, the reason why they do that is really quite simple. It's because they want to remember if they liked it or not, right? And, you know, that makes sense. And with a restaurant, that just is less relevant. And you walk into a restaurant and you remember it was crappy, you probably remember it anyway. So with wine, it's different because you do maybe hundreds of wines over a relative short period. Some of us do at least. Right, okay. So, in, but in terms of the people who are prolific, are you doing something to foster that community? I think we, honestly, we haven't done that much of that. We don't have events or anything like that. We have a group that we call featured users that we push extra. So a group of people that we think, okay, these people write really good reviews. And then we push them in the community so others see them and can follow them and so on. Which means we now have users that have like 50 to 100,000 followers on Vivino. And so we try and push them and promote them more. So whatever business they're in, we can, we can help them a little bit and obviously appreciate their effort. Makes sense. And in terms of the app, how, in terms of that last mile, the merchant links, how does that work with the app overall? Like what, that seems like a part that's probably very country specific as well. It is. Yeah. And even in the U.S. state specific, right? So we have 700 merchants on the platform, just under half of them are in the U.S., And these are fully integrated with us. So when you buy there, you can use Apple Pay or Google Pay. Although we don't take the money right away, the transaction is made on the platform. So the money goes to the retailer and they are the retailer of record, but we manage all that and make sure it all works. So the way that works is that we have a a feed from them. It could be like an XML feed with all their wines and what's in their warehouses or even an API that's fully integrated. And obviously a lot of logistics involved, but... I mean, we've become incredibly good also at picking the right partners to to be good at this. Yeah. So how do you figure out the availability of wines in certain locations that match consumers and where they're able to, to get the wines? Yeah. So basically, when you look at the app, if you scan a bottle of wine, we look at all the merchants that can ship to you, like you're in California. So we would look, okay, can anyone ship this wine to California? Because the retailers say we can ship to there. If that's not the case, we just can't show you a buy button. But if you reverse that and you use the the first tab in our app, which has recommendations and top lists and so on, everything we have there is for sale, right? Because we would only show you things that you can buy on that. And another thing that I'm incredibly proud of is the second tab on the app, which is a search function, but it's it's more like buying an airline ticket today. And we talked about taste before. You can actually go in now and say, I want a red wine. I want to pay 30 bucks. And I want a specific acidity. And then you can sort of, and then it says first it's 200 wines. And then as you to- scroll it in, sort of, it can come down to 20 wines you can actually buy with the right acidity for you. It's a little bit nerdy, but I mean, with your audience, why not? <laughs> yeah, they definitely like that. So your merchant partners are the merchants of record. Does Vivino just take a commission? Yes, we take a marketing fee on the transactions that are made there, yes. And they vary. The merchants that we have vary. Like We have companies that are small. We also have wine.com. So all kinds of, of merchants are on the platform. And does the money that Vivino collects 
or does Vivino collect the money or does it go to the merchant? That I could imagine is an interesting thing with alcohol legislation and, <laughs> you know, all that. Yeah, the way it works right now is that we we can't or we don't take the money right now. I think actually we might be able to take a cut and then pass it on. But right now we pass everything to the retailer and then charge them afterwards. That's how, if you want to be very, very careful, we might change that in the future. But that's how it works right now. So we'll ship all the money straight to the retailer. So if you want to buy more than one wine from Vivino from different merchants, are those separate transactions or do you guys have a way of like putting them into a basket and processing it on, on your end? Yeah, very, very sensitive subject. Let me tell you that. It is, it's a very tricky thing to do, right? Because these are independent retailers and we can't, the shipping is a big thing in, in wine, obviously. It's big and bulky and heavy. It turns out it breaks too. So they will be different baskets. What we will do is like, hey, you found this specific Cabernet Sauvignon. Maybe you only want to buy four bottles. We'll recommend you other stuff that will match you from that retailer. And we'll also do like really quite interesting sort of mixed cases automatically generated. If we find out you like caps in the $25 range, it will automatically do like six bottles, but two of each in a category and so on. So we try and do that as, as well as we can so you avoid too much shipping cost. So in terms of the wine being sold through Vivino, it seems like from the numbers that we were able to see that the growth year over year is quite substantial. I'm curious on, is that the end goal? Is that, is that the main target is just to keep pushing that number up in, th- in terms of selling wine through the app? Or is there other facets to the business? Yeah, I think the reason why we're doing well, I think that's important, is because we are a community. We're a community of 50 million users, and we help them drink better wine. Some of those wines are bought through Vivino, but we always have to be loyal to that community. We can never do anything to jeopardize that relationship. And so, yes, we we definitely want to grow the business, but it has to be done in the right way. We can never jeopardize that, that relationship. So we've done really well. Like you say, we did 265 million in wine sales in 2020 with 100% growth. So so we're doing really, really well these days. And we appreciate that. How much of that do you think is from the pandemic versus just organic growth? Yeah, it's a good question. We had budgeted a little bit lower, let's put it that, but we didn't know there was going to be a virus. I think what we're seeing is we saw e-commerce and wine sort of slowly go up, and then we've seen a jump. And honestly, I don't think it's going to come down again. It's Maybe the growth flattens for a half a year and then it starts going up again. I also think we're seeing some kind of tipping point in the wine industry. I think right now the, the online part is becoming so big now that anyone in the business can't ignore online anymore. We've seen it in our supply. We've seen that a lot of producers have come to us that maybe didn't want to sell through this channel and said, you know what, since the restaurants are closed, we need to find alternatives. And at some point, online e-commerce becomes so big that you can't ignore it anymore. And I think we've reached that tipping point now. So there's the e-commerce element. Do you also have other revenue streams for the business like advertising or promoting wineries or things of that nature? Yeah, so the the marketplace is the biggest part of our business. We've also started a new program we call Sponsorships, which is for wineries. We don't directly push them, but we we, we let them sort of look better once people come across them. So we have a package of sponsorships where they can add videos, learn more about the winery, and also we give them some data about their wines. Like never about the users, but about how people drink their wine, what they say about their wine, where they scan them, and so on and so forth. I have to assume that you have some very powerful data here globally about how people buy 
wine, where they buy wine, how fast they even consume it, because usually people are probably not going to be putting a tasting note if they haven't opened the wine. So I'm assuming that's pretty powerful data that could be leveraged to really give some targeted marketing. Do you see that as a major future revenue stream once you get enough mass or even wineries get on board with, or wine brands, I should say, get on board with leveraging that data to kind of push sales? Look, first of all, you're right. We have an insane amount of data and it's it's incredibly cool. I'm a big data guy. I love this shit. So it's amazing. But there are certain ways we would like to use it and there are certain ways we don't want to use it. We never want to jeopardize our users' data in a way. We never want to sort of sell the data. We, we don't want to be a Facebook type of business at all. And that said, there are a lot of other things you can do with the data, like the winemakers can learn how they should fine-tune the taste of their wines, where their wines are being sold. And we can look at maybe Florida isn't doing as well as Connecticut and so on. We can dig down to all those things that they, they find incredibly interesting. And on top of that, we can look at trends too, right? You know, is Rosé still growing and how, what is actually happening there and so on? I believe you must have some sort of API or something to for people to access that data because I, I have seen products like, I believe, Analytics and Emetry that take in Vivino data and create different metrics and analytics for wineries mostly you leveraging that data. So we've done a little bit with them, not so much. And most of that is honestly about resources. We haven't opened that up much, but we're sharing some of that with wineries now. So that we're doing, we're using a company called Looker. I think it's owned by Google now. And they connect to our data, and which means we can do all kinds of, of cool reports on the data. We have also a data warehouse and so on. So what I usually say to when people say, hey, what does the data say? And the answer is the data doesn't say anything. But you, if you ask really smart questions, it can give you some good answers. So it's a lot of work to do all those things. And we've had a certain amount of demand. But I also, as you guys probably know, that the wine industry is not an industry with a lot of big companies. So their usage of data and marketing and so on, is, they're not as savvy as beer or spirits and so on. That's definitely true. And so Vivino was founded in 2010, the same year as Instagram. Do you see parallels to the development of Vivino and that mobile first tech landscape that we see today? Yeah, I definitely see parallels, right? So when we talk about, hey, why did we succeed? Why did it go well? And so on. And a lot of that is timing, right? So we hit the timing really well when it comes to launching the product. Like the iPhone was a couple of years old and the, the technology around scanning pictures was getting pretty good. They had a camera, they were on all those things. We don't think about, they happened at the same time. And obviously mobile first too. But that's also where we go in different directions. I thought we in the beginning thought that Vivian was going to be a very social product. And it is for some people, but for most people, it is not. It's, it, there's a small group of people that loves the social features and it's fantastic, but most people don't use it like that. So we had to sort of make decisions along the way and what worked and what didn't. So recently, Vivino raised a significant amount of funding, $155 million in Series D. I'm curious on what will that funding be allocated to in terms of the growth of Vivino? Like, where are you going to be placing your bets with that new found investment? We're still a relatively small company. That's the one thing I will say to begin with. We're just over 200 people. And if we look at something like Android, you know, we have three developers on Android. And that just isn't enough. One of the things that we're going to do is really upgrade our product engineering to just keep improving our product and also develop even faster. So that is a big part of what we're doing. I think our users are going to feel that. On top of that, 
our user base is all over the world. So when it comes to the commercial part of the business, we also have very, very few people in each market. So that's another thing. We're going to go deeper into each market. That's in the UK, in Germany, obviously in the US, so on and so forth. Third thing is obviously marketing. We spend very little money on marketing. We're privileged in the way that 20,000 people install the app every single day. But we want to add more to that and spend more money on marketing. Basically, if you compare our, our GMV, our sales, we spend like 1.5% on marketing. That is it's very, very small for any e-commerce business. So Vivino is the most popular wine app in the world with over 50 million users globally, as you said. Are How many of those users are active users? Yeah, that number has been relatively constant in percentage. So it is around 10 million users that use the app every single month. But if you look over a year, I think if we look at 2020, it was over 20, maybe even 25 million that were active throughout the year. So we have a lot of users that use it once in a while, and then obviously a very, very strong group that uses it every single month. And you mentioned that it sounded like mostly Northern European countries that you're focused on expanding to. What are the current biggest markets for Vivino today? Yeah, so it is U.S. as number one, when commercially it's it's half of our revenue. So U.S. is very, very important for us. And after that, it's basically the big countries in Europe with more focus on in the north, uh, just because e-commerce is a little bit more mature. So the U.K., Germany, Netherlands, obviously Denmark and Sweden and so on. So all those markets are, are doing really, really well for us. In the south, we're really big in Italy and Spain and obviously France too. E-commerce is, is not really as mature as it is uh, in the north. I'm curious on the actual wines that are being reviewed on Vivino at mass. Like, Do you have an average price point for the bottle of wine that's being reviewed on Vivino? I actually couldn't give you that because I, I just don't know. Generally, I'll say that whatever people drink and then a little bit higher, right? So it's people that if the average bottle of wine in the U.S. is $10, probably what's rated is 13 to 15 And then what's sold is even higher just because shipping costs and, and so on. So, so we're really trying to hit the bulk of the market, but we end up a tiny bit higher than that. So that's usually uh, how it goes. Yeah, I think the average price for a bottle of wine globally is like 7 or $8 a bottle, but online it's 20 plus. Exactly. So we're seeing those same trends, although in the U.S. it has a certain, it is, is very high. But in Europe, like in Spain, like we do the exact same business model, but the price per bottle we sell is like a third. Some of those markets are more price sensitive. In terms of the actual goal, in terms of the product offering, do you see at some point selling like super luxury wines through Vivino or is it more going after the broader group, the lower price points that, well, lower being a strong word, but saying that $20-ish price point? We want to start with the middle and then we'll go, probably there's not much going down from there, but we go up from there too. So we have all those clients on too. And the cool thing is that when you get 20,000 users every day, then there will be some, whatever, hundreds of them that ask for really, really expensive wines. And that can be a really good business too. So we're, uh, no, no, we're definitely going after that. I think the, the important thing to say is that when we look at what features to build, and especially sometimes there can be a conflict between what you want to build and what you don't want to build, we are always going to look at the casual wine drinker first. So in terms of the users coming on board, are most of those people using the app at home when they have the bottle up in front of them or are they using it when they're at the retail location making a purchasing decision? Because I have heard anecdotally from Psalms that we've interviewed uh, for various episodes that said, hey, someone came back and said they were looking up the wines on Bovino while they were at their wine list. I'm just curious on like where, where are people using it? Is it at home or is it at point of purchase? 
I will say right now it's mostly at home, obviously. But I, it's around, actually, we split it between like exploring and drinking. And it's around 50-50. So exploring means you're out somewhere in a supermarket or somewhere else. And the other 50% is drinking. And these, these are estimates. But drinking could be at a restaurant or at home or, or something like that. So roughly 50-50 on, on that one. And so you had mentioned that you are exploring ways to give merchants and wine brands, not preference, not ads per se, but essentially highlight them. In what form does that come about? Is that like search results, sort of like a Google ads? Like if I search for something and it's a match with one of the highlighted brands, it gets featured to the top or is it an ad or, or is it put into their feed somehow? We've really decided not to do it like that. And the philosophy behind that is that we think both for us as, the, as a business and for our users, we always want to show you whatever we think is the best wine for you and never, ever compromise that. So that's the decision we've made on that. So what we've done for these sponsorships is things like, hey, when you would land on a specific wine page, we'll show a video so that once you meet this particular wine, it looks much better and it's much more interactive and so on and so forth. And for some of these, we also run campaigns that are are sort of follow-ups where you we actually did drink a wine, you scanned a wine, we follow up with an email going backwards and saying, hey, by the way, here's the full story about the winery. So we've decided not to do those AdSense type, AdWords type things in the app. You do a follow-up email as opposed to directly from inside the app. You bifurcate that, so you, you separate the messaging out for the end user. Yeah, so we do both. So some people want to have buy this extra service of following up with an email, which tells the story about the winemaker or something like that. So. I've had some wineries tell me that they've been very successful selling wine through Vivino. Could you give us an, just an overview or maybe an example of how that works and how much wine someone could actually sell? If we look at how the wines are being sold right now, around 50% of it is totally sort of pull. It means that all our algorithms and people search and people do their things. The other half is somehow something we push. It means that someone has had a hand on this and, you know, we think this particular wine, again, we're not getting paid more for it, anything like that. It's just an email going and say, we think this is good value for money and off it goes. And those volumes can be pretty significant because we just sell a lot of wine. For us, it is a lot about value for money. So whatever our users say is good for $18 or for $28, we want to help our users find. But it's like, it can be, it can be thousands of, of bottles, uh, literally. And, and I can tell you a story, but now I don't even remember the numbers, but we helped launch Post Malone's wine, his rosé last year and released it again this year. And we can push hundreds of thousands of dollars in a couple of days in those extreme cases. Well, I have to imagine there's not a lot of opportunities for wine brands to do a global push like there is. Like you're, you're one of the few ways to do that outside of maybe doing some stuff on social media, but you're very focused and targeted in terms of, you know, all 50 million of those people are wine lovers. Otherwise, they wouldn't be downloading a separate app. Yeah. And we sell in 17 markets right now, 17 countries. So of those 17 markets and countries, what percentage of your users actually like purchase something through Vivino versus just use it for recording and exploring their tasting notes? Yeah, I think this is this is one of the reasons why our investors, although our numbers are pretty big now, they are crazy interested in the potential is that those numbers are still small. So so when you look at it percentage-wise, it is single digit of our monthly active users that actually buy through the app. And again, we're fine with that. Like, hey, they don't have to buy. They use the app. They give us data, all those things. It's all good. But we think there is a potential to grow that number and get more people to convert. 
So around the same time Vivino was founded, Delectable made a similar type of play. It was a app you could scan a bottle for and sort of rate, share, that sort of thing. What do you see as the differences between the two paths those companies have taken? Yeah, great question, because we thought a lot about this and also met with like old CEO there and so on. And I think there are a few things. One thing is, who do you focus on? Who are you building this for? And we were very, very clear that we wanted to service the casual wine drinker. And they were very clearly in a different one. And honestly, when they started, I was like, okay, this is a smart move. And they're doing really well in the beginning. So what they did was got a lot of psalms on board, a lot of influencers on board, like a almost like an Instagram kind of thing, right? And I was like worried. It was very industry. Yeah, it was very industry. But what I learned relatively quickly, quickly was that that really wasn't a good strategy. It was good to keep those people on the platform and they're still using it, some of them but it actually pushes other people away. It's like, okay, when I go there, I feel like an outsider. And that's not, we want to be approachable. We want to demystify wine, all those things. And I think for a lot of people, Delectable felt like the opposite. Interesting. Yeah, it was was very insider. It was, yeah, yeah. And we did not want to do that. One of the other interesting comparisons, I think, as you ramp up the search function and AI would be, to Wine Searcher, which has been around for a long time, which now has some like photo app where you can look it up, but you can see where to buy things online. How do you compare yourself to Wine Searcher? Yeah, I, we also know them really well, including uh, Martin, the founder there. So they are extremely focused on, first of all, it's, it's higher end, right? It is, it is mostly higher end wines, but they're, what they're really good at is saying, okay, I have this specific bottle of wine. Where can I buy it? And then obviously they don't do transactions. So it's a little bit more cumbersome. You have to find this special dealer in Vermont and go to their website and actually buy it and so on. So it's a little bit more, more cumbersome. And we, again, if we would value convenience a little bit more for that, so you can, hey, use Apple Pay and, and buy these six bottles in, in seconds. Yeah, it seems like their business model is mostly affiliate links and the membership fees that that either users or or retailers pay to join. Uh, I am curious on Drizzly. Obviously, we had the acquisition of Drizzly. Like that in terms of that last mile, how does that help or hinder the growth of Avino in the U.S. market? Yeah, I also think they're different. I know them really well. I've talked to them many times. Like great company, first and foremost. And now I mentioned the word convenience. They are actually, when it comes to convenience in delivery and so on, that's been their number one. It means, okay, I want a bottle of vodka right now. How can I get it in an hour? And if you compare us to them, what they're good at is building this network, actually thousands of retailers around the US and getting something quickly. They focus less on the explore part, ratings and reviews and so on. So our users, hey, they want the right wine, but they can wait a day or two. Their users, you want it faster, but maybe it's less important exactly what it is. So uh, I'm curious, what's the end game? Is the end game to go the Drizzly route and get acquired by one of the big names like an Amazon? Or is the goal to go IPO? Like, do you have a master plan? Yeah, definitely a master plan and a small island somewhere. No, um, (laughs) I think number one is really, hey, can we build a big and sustainable business here? Can we build something that is profitable and is standalone? I mean, that's always been our goal. I'd say after the, the last year or so, we've really started to think IPO could be a real real option here. We think that's super interesting. Companies like ours do really well on the stock exchange. So without sort of saying exactly what it could be, I think that is a good option. And if someone wants to buy us, I think that's, that is cool too. But most important is to build a great company that serves our wine drinkers. 
Awesome. Well, this has been very informative to the entire business. With every guest, we always ask for a lasting trend in a fizzling fad. And so for we'd love for you to focus in on the wine and tech space. So what do you think is a lasting trend in the wine and tech space? Things that are just starting to take off and you think will have long legs for many years to come. And then what do you think is a fizzling fad? Something that was popular, but is really kind of waning or about to start waning? I got this brief on this and the fad, I'm going to ask you guys to shoot a few after me and then I'll say yes or no. But but with the more lasting, I'm going to be a little bit predictable here, you guys, because I think we're, we're seeing a change right now. I mean, so why do people buy wine in brick and mortar? Like my core philosophy here is people go offline in brick and mortar to buy wine because it's better. And I think that change is coming now. The new platform, obviously, I'm thinking about our shelves here, that can really help me pick the best wine. I think in wine, we're seeing what books have done over the last 20 years. Suddenly, you just have better selection, better prices, better recommendations, everything online. And now it's just better to buy wine online. And that's a lasting thing. I think that change is coming right now. Obviously, definitely, you know, I'm not biased at all. But that is my thinking on that one. With the fats, I mean... I just, I couldn't think of this something right. What, give me a question. Well, what, what do you think could be a potential fad here? So is the image scanning, is that like, I mean, we see that wine searchers picked it up. Is that core to the business anymore? Is that something that is kind of ubiquitous? At, or that Sorry, the technology is a little bit ubiquitous at this point. Yeah. But the reason why they don't, it's, it's so hard to do. That's the problem. Like you, we have 1.5 billion pictures of wine labels that we've tagged. So that's hard. I'd say I don't think the scanning is going to disappear. If we look more long term, I see look, when we think about what our role is going to be in the future, it isn't limited to an app. I think we really are a data company. We want to know everything about the wine. And when it comes to that, you know, we've done deals with Bixby, which is Samsung. So every single Samsung phone that ships, there's this product called Bixby and they can scan wine. They use our data. And we just launched with Snapchat in the US so that you can use Snapchat if you're 21 to scan wine bottles too. So I think that's something, I don't think it's a fad, but at some point this is going to change. And I always think long-term and I think they're, all kinds of opportunities. If you're a data company, if you're only an app company, that could be different. What about uh, email blast marketing? So retailers, I probably get like 10 emails a day from the same retailer. And then I get like five retailers, <laughs> all these emails a day, right? Do you think that's a fad and something will replace it? Oh my God, I feel like an old man at this point. But really, everybody said, says email is dead every single year, right? And still, there is a reason why you get those 10 emails. They're bloody profitable. So I can't see us killing the email just yet, I must say. We need some alternatives that we like, and I don't think we really found them yet. So uh, maybe, look, it's for you guys here, when we talk about these fads here, I am an optimist, right? So that's probably why I have a harder time finding these, these fads. What about AR technology, like the 19 Crimes label? Is that a fad or is that something that is going to be a trend? 100% fad. <laughs> yeah, I, I did think about that. I didn't, I didn't want to, I didn't want to bring it up. Like, but, but here's the thing. Here's the fundamental problem with that. So do you want to install an app to get an ad, right? People don't do that. They just don't install things in their house or in their phone or anywhere to get advertising. So yes, will we do that maybe as a part of our app at some point? If the app has other values and reasons to use it, yes. But installing something to get a gimmick slash ad, sorry, that's not a long-term thing. Found our fad. <laughs> They're found or fad. All right. Well, I, I am curious though, because I actually think if I were to go and scan through the Vivino app and that would be able to enable the winemaker, the producer to tell their story and give data that is actually kind of 
multimedia-ish. It'd be quite interesting to me, but I'm, I'm a nerd. So I totally agree with that. It's just that the particular use case where you can scan 10 wines with an app and then the chance of you actually hitting one of those just isn't useful enough. But what you just said is like, hey, I scanned a bottle, a video pops up with a winemaker, tells the story. Definitely, yes. Come on, it's not going to be a video. It's going to be a hologram that sits on your shoulder and talks into your ear, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It whispers in your ear so you can tell everybody how smart you are. The wine devil and the wine angel uh, pop up on your shoulders. Heidi, <laughs> mean, thank you for taking the time to chat with us all the way from Copenhagen. We greatly appreciate learning more about the Vivino business and the future of what you guys are going to be doing in the coming years. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. <laughs>